0: Welcome to video store my name is sam mulberry today we are talking about the 2003 guy madden film the saddest music in the world so let's step into Baird fisher's video store Baird, how you doing
1: i'm doing well i'm not sad at all <laughs> well there i we
0: were just talking a little bit beforehand i am so excited to talk about this movie um uh i i this I'm very excited about this filmmaker is I guess what I'm going to say. And I've done a little bit more digging into him and this, he actually seems like my kind of guy in mm. terms of the, the stuff that he's, uh, that he's doing, but uh, let's start maybe uh, what is your history with, let's just start with this film and then we'll talk, we'll, we'll blow it out
1: and talk a little bit more about Guy Madden in general. Yeah, this, this film, um, I remember most vividly the second time I saw it. I don't remember how or why i encountered it the first time but the second time would have been about oh i don't know maybe 15 years ago maybe a little longer not not long after the film came out um the heights theater uh, in columbia heights showed the film with madden there in person doing commentary while the film was playing so it it was an amazing experience um don't ask me how much of the commentary I remember. There's one particular item I remember that we can talk about later, um, and in, and I haven't listened. There is a commentary on the DVD as well, which I had not listened to, so I assume it was part of what I heard in the theater. But that was uh, that was probably the most significant encounter for me with this with this film.
0: Well, that is that's amazing. I mean, if if there was a movie I would want to hear the filmmaker talk about, this is this is this is pretty this is a pretty good one. Um, I have to say, my only history with this film, I had not seen it but about maybe six months, a year ago, you emailed me about guy Madden there, there being like a guy Madden collection on the criterion channel. Mm. I remember whenever I would go into criterion, it was one of the things that was highlighted in what I remember about it is the title of this movie. I just kept seeing a movie called the saddest music in the world and a. A picture of a woman's face that i now know is isabella rossellini um and i just there was something haunting about the title and her face and i never watched it but i but like every time i would go into criterion i would look at that and think i want to see a movie called the saddest music in the world <laughs> but i didn't know what it was going to be and i just never got around to it um so i was excited when you recommended this because because that i, I it's sort of as like it, i don't know if you remember like I always have t- these memories from childhood were certain images you saw or things you heard or phrases stuck in your head and just kind of haunt is the best word I can say. This one has haunted me for about a year. So I was excited <laughs> to see this. So who who's Guy Madden? Let's let's maybe talk about him. I did I did some reading on him, but I, I have a sense you have a um, uh larger sense of who he is
1: yeah um you know he, he is i guess you could say he is an experimental slash art house filmmaker who is really interested as you can tell from science music in the world who's really interested in older techniques of filmmaking um one of the reasons he has made films the way he has is it's been a simply um limited resources uh eight millimeter 16 millimeter um he has shot a lot in black and white just because he doesn't necessarily have the technical uh capabilities of doing more with color um and so he represents a kind of um a kind of avant-garde filmmaking that is close enough to the mainstream you know that a, that a film like sas music in the world might actually show up in people's um People's consciousness. Uh, he makes a lot of short films. Uh, you mentioned the collection on Criterion. On he does a lot of uh, films everywhere, from three to four minutes to nineteen to uh, to twenty minutes. Um, and he's just been very. He also has done art installations uh, as, as well. So you can kind of see that uh, the, his style of filmmaking lends itself very well to to installation art as well. He's been very consistent, very prolific since the uh, since the late '80s.
0: Yeah, I uh we're going to come back to him as a experimental artist as an installation artist because there at the end of this episode there's something else of his that I want to talk about that I had a chance to experience last night and it's one of the coolest things in the world but I'm gonna, I want to I want to talk about this movie a little bit more first. Um how indicative cuz this is the only like full on feature film I've seen of his. How indicative of a guy mad movie is this? And I ask because everything that I read Describe this as oh, this is by far his most accessible film, and you know these types of things. So, so uh, is this indicative of his style, or or um, how might you describe his body of work more broadly when we're talking about maybe keeping it to feature films and maybe some of the short film stuff?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think I, I think that his style, and and I've only begun to kind of get more into the short films. I think that the style is fairly consistent across the short uh the narrative films in that he likes the um he likes the scratchy black and white uh sometimes with the uh, the splash of color uh he likes to do and he tends to like to do a lot of cutting um one of his short films has like over over 100 shots in four minutes um almost very almost like an eisenstein uh, montage editing so I think the editing style uh, of SAZ music in the world, the visual style of SAZ music in the world is fairly typical of a lot of his films, not all of them. I mean, if you look at a film like um, Diary from a Vampire, uh, pages from the Vampire's Diary film, that's a, that's a very different kind of visual style. But SAZ music in the world is, is pretty typical. Um, he has a number of other narrative films, and those are the ones I know best, um, Brand Upon the Brain, uh, and Keyhole, uh, a couple of other examples. Uh, Keyhole is kind of a retelling of the Ulysses myth as a film noir. Um, Brand Upon the Brain is a very um, kind of childhood-oriented film. Those, uh, as narrative films, to me, are kind of of a piece with Sadist Music. Um, so he's got those films, but then he has, oh, and, and uh, Cowards, Coward's Bend the Knee. Um, but then he has the really short films that kind of take, they're almost like little monographs. They take a single topic and just kind of play with it. So one of my favorite ones of those is How to Take a Bath, um, which is a four-minute film on how to take a bath. Um, so so he's got those kind of playful things that, that he does uh, as well. And you can see a little bit of that sensibility, status, music in the world, how he's kind of capable of both humor and pathos at the, at the same time. He's got a pretty broad uh, range of the, on the emotional palette.
0: I will say this movie uh going back to our very first episode i said the thing that i most want when i watch a movie um this this movie ticks that ticks that box and that is I like to sit down and just see something I've never seen before and this is so different than i mean it is it is both paying homage to things i have seen before but the actual thing that i'm watching was just was, was just so different i mean i've I at times I found it like confounding, like what what did did, did the thing I think just happened happen, um and and I but I was also excited. This is the kind of movie I was like I wanted to stand up at moments when I watched just to be like oh wow this you know like like, like I I love the energy of this. Um, I think this is a version of what I want when I see a movie, and I could be convinced that like generally speaking, films aren't weird enough. And this is, this is like a weird movie. And, and, and when you settle into it, you're like, okay, maybe I'm sort of tracking with this. And then something else weird happens. And you're like, oh, good. Like, like, like I, um, I, it, so you had asked me, like, you weren't sure how I was going to respond to this. And I said, this is really in my wheelhouse. And it's because this movie like goes in weird directions. And, and it, when it's, when it settles in, it reminds you, oh yeah, we're going to be weird as well. Um, but it also works as a movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, actually, it's it's uh, his filmmaking has been described as nostalgia for a past that never existed. Um, it's as though he's recreating something that wasn't there, but you feel like you know this is not obviously nineteen thirty three Winnipeg. By the way, a lot of his films are centered on Winnipeg. One of his best films is called My Winnipeg. Um, he's one of those artists. Um, okay, now I, at the risk of pigeonholing him, because I really don't want to do this, I want to say it anyway. He is, in a sense, a Lynchian artist, um, not only because he's weird, although I don't, I don't think he's weird in the way that Lynch is weird, but because he is an artist that is deliberately raiding the unconscious. Um, so much of what he does is refracted through his autobiography, is an attempt to come to grips with his own, uh, his own history. So he talks in it was a really interesting interview on the Couturian Channel with him. Um, And he talks about uh, losing his brother. Uh, Wasn't sure how old his brother was, older than him, his brother was, but his brother committed suicide on the grave of a girl who died about six months earlier. And then Madden moved into his brother's room. And so he kind of talks about like becoming his brother or dealing with the the specter of his brother. And so, so much of what he does kind of comes out of that unconscious place where Lynch has always said his films come from uh, as well. And so, in that sense, you could also call him kind of a romantic artist, right? Because that's what the romantics are draw often drawing on. So much of the romantic uh, inspiration comes from those memories of childhood. Uh, and we all know how fragile, malleable, uh, sometimes insubstantial and yet persistent those childhood memories are. And that's, I think, exactly what Madden's trying to capture.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned the unconscious because the the, uh, the other thing that I was thinking is hmm. how much this movie – functions in the way like a dream functions yeah, yeah um so like so it it jumps around visually and when i think about uh you know like when i think about the story it has these jumps but it, it makes sense um but at the same time so after i watched this i was explaining it to my daughter i was like okay i watched this movie and let me let me try to tell you the story of this and i realized like wait these things that make sense to me when I try to say them out loud, so it's, it was like describing a dream to someone where I'm like, no, no, but, but trust me, like it makes sense. Even though when I say it, it sounds ridiculous. And it sounds like there's leaps in here that I need to explain that the movie doesn't bother to explain, but you know, so, so like, and, and I, and I think I, that's something I really love. I, there, there are, you know, a few movies in my life that I feel like really function that way, where you're, where um, it, it really taps into I think the way that I experience dreams and maybe the way all of us experience dreams um and I feel like this movie is is locked into that in a kind of way which makes the the viewing of it really interesting and makes the uh the the reviewing of it very interesting. so I ended up watching this again um this was one of the better rewatches because there mm-hmm. I realized all of these things that he does that if you're watching it for the first time, there's no way you could have known this thing that happened early. Was actually going to get called back later. And it doesn't matter whether you know that it was called back, but it's interesting to rewatch and realize, like, oh, there's all this stuff at the beginning of the movie that I had just totally forgotten because there was so much going on. Um, You know, I'll give you an example of a very obvious thing. Like, the movie starts and we see the flashback to kind of the family band and the mother dies while singing <laughs> the song is you i did not remember that i mean oh, yeah. and it even comes back later and i was like oh yeah i remember a scene of like a woman falling on a piano but there's so much other business that goes on like visually that i didn't connect that and when i watched it again i was like oh my goodness it's all right there like, like to, to a degree it's really big chunks of it are all right there and i just i like it's like i couldn't take it all in the first time so the second time through it's no less weird and all over the place but you feel like your brain is able to see what he's doing a little bit more
1: yeah it's really i guess you could say in a sense it's really dense visually it's really it's really packed um it, it, and it I, you know i think we both love films that um make you work and you feel like it's worth the work But because it's it's a pleasurable work, and I think that's the way this this film functions. I would also point out, too, um, going back to your comment about the dream, Sam, that you could also argue that a lot of the editing style of the film is, in fact, dreamlike. Um, You know, part of it is narrative economy. But when you think about dreams, right, you know, okay, so I was sitting here talking to so-and-so, and and then all of a sudden I was there talking to that person, and then I was over here. You know, dreams have this um, discontinuity of space and time that you just kind of you just kind of take it into stride. And I think this film works that way as well, because as I said, it's both narrative because you realize Chester is doing lots of stuff off screen. We never see him do as he makes various arrangements, but at the same time, it's also the way dreams kind of work, you know, now you're here and now, and and, and now you're there. So I think uh, to me, that's p- partly the logic of his editing style.
0: Yeah. And, and even like the, the landscape reminds me of the landscape of dreams. Cause there's moments where it's like, like, where is this taking place? Sometimes I feel like I'm in a real place i don't understand the buildings it seems like the snow is 20 feet high because like when they get into the train from the top the first time i saw that i was just like i don't i don't get it and then the second time through i thought oh there's just a lot of snow so he's getting into the train from the top but then at other times it feels like that's not an issue at all and the buildings are all very strange um, in terms of like how they're entering and exiting them and you know, some, uh, there's a point where Narcissa just takes a nap on a snowbank, and it's, and it's like, uh, okay, Uh, things like the tapeworm, like all these little like character quirks. Some of them seem very tied to the core narrative and some of them are just things you just accept because you're, you know, they're not going to, not all those loose ends are going to get tied up you know
1: well, well yeah and one that doesn't get tied up but it just continues the dream theme is the sleepwalker yes right there's that, and and you you don't know why the sleepwalker is there and he shows up and that's the end there's the sleepwalker so and he
0: says good night mother and you're like good is night, that mother. like yeah. this thing so, about the sun but maybe it's not
1: yeah so but, but I think it's another one of those dream world um elements, and yeah and, and the way the father shows up in the you know car twenty three we won't have to pay for this I mean to me that's just that's the way dream logic yeah, works. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah yeah, or or another one that I only noticed as I was looking back at my notes that when Roderick first comes to the house, there is clearly has been this dispute with he and his brother about a stolen music box, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, well, that's clearly a plot point, which it's not. And 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 again, th- that shows that there's also like a a, um, in in interesting ways, a line like that rounds characters out more because like there are disputes between these people or things between these people that are never going to come back. Not because in our lives, not everything ties up around a central plot line. So I actually really love comments like that because I sort of wonder like, oh, uh, I want I want to know the music box story, and I'm <laughs> glad that I don't know it, but 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 I like that those that those things are there, um. So one of the things that I, I'm, I'm I, I would love to hear you talk about, uh, and you've hinted at this a little bit, but like um, the sort of the 1930s of all of this. It's obviously set in the 30s. It's set in the Depression, and it's I love how he locates this at a very specific demo- moment in the Depression, right before the end of Prohibition. So so you have Lady Port Huntley, who's like. Um, <laughs> I love the boardroom scenes where she, you know, you can see why she is this like beer mogul is because she's working all of these angles. And even the sort of saddest music contest is about finding the best markets for beer, the place that has the saddest music. Well, they're going to be the people who drink the most and, <laughs> and sort of the relationship to the U S and how, you know, if, if you're, if you're sad and like beer, I'm your lady. Like <laughs> I, I love that. But um, so it's definitely located in a specific moment in time. Um, But like, for, for someone like Madden, uh, why the 19 thir- why is the 1930s an era he's particularly interested in, at least in this film?
1: Well, that's a good question because, you know, the uh, the screenplay is adapted from uh, an Ishiguro screenplay, um, which set it, it's the same notion, but it's set contemporaneously. It was set in 1983 in Eastern Europe. Uh, and so Madden... As you already know, it makes a deliberate effort to put it back in 1933. Um, I, think, I think there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, one is it it, it actually kind of, um, uh, I don't know what you want to say, naturalizes or kind of explains why it looks like an old 1930s film. And that seems probably the most obvious answer. It's all, it's, so it's almost as though it's this, you know, found footage or as though it's actually been filmed in 33. But I think he also... Um, I think it also ties into the theme of depression, right? Which is, which is, which is a theme uh, certainly with the character of Roderick uh, and the effects of depression, uh, because you have Roderick who, you know, cannot let go of the death of his son. You have Narcissa who evidently has a kind of amnesia that's been imposed by the death of the son. Uh, you have Theodore who lives with the sadness of having cut off both of Lady Port Huntley's legs. Um, so you have all these characters who are depressed you have a you have an economic depression, and then you also have this kind of um, this kind of consistent question of Canadian identity versus American identity, um, and and this is the one moment when maybe Canada has a little bit of a leg up on the United States because Canada doesn't have prohibition and they've got all this beer. At the same time, you've got somebody who's Canadian who doesn't want to be Canadian. He wants to be uh, American. And you've got another Canadian who doesn't want to be Canadian. He wants to be Serbian. And then you've got Narcissa who's not an, who says she's not an American. She's an infomaniac. Um, so you've got all these questions about your identity. Uh, and so I think he uses the, the point of the depression to kind of coalesce around, around that. It's also kind of a great leveler. Right, if this is if this is the depression, we're all kind of sad. So who's going to be who's going to be the sadness, the saddest? So, and I think it's also it's in thirty three, right? It's right as it's kind of the depths of the of the depression, kind of the worst point uh, of the depression. So the depression becomes obviously a metaphor for for the national mood.
0: You also get that the the sort of uh, interwar period. So, like thinking about when when you mentioned you know Canadian identity, um, it's no mistake that you see the father. You know, when he's playing red maple leaves, he makes this speech about all the Canadians who died at Vimy Ridge in the First World War. And I've been to Vimy a uh, number of times, and there is that is where the great Canadian memorial is. The Canadian identity is forged in the First World War. So even the father is thinking about Canadian identity in a particular kind of way. Um uh, by, you know, putting on his military uniform and, and making the, you know, making his speech about uh, uh, about all the people who died at Vimy uh, and things like that.
1: Um, and, and, and even and even though the film never mentions it, uh, of course, 1933 is Hitler's rise to power. Mm-hmm. So I, I, and, and, and yeah, I mean, one of the things I wrote in my notes at one point, Sam, is what does this film have to do with World War One? I? I mean, to in what in what sense is this a, a war film uh, as well? So
0: yeah uh okay, a question that that i I'm gonna ask just for conversation points. I really don't care about the answer, and so I apologize if this is annoying, but how do you classify this film? I mean it is definitely funny and it's you know it's it's sold sort of as a comedy. it's also very dramatic it is very sad and I find it very very sad and moving um it's got a lot of music in it it's you know I've seen it described as a musical and it has like musical numbers kind of i mean i you know in some ways I think it's uh, I think definitions like this I, I don't worry so much about but I'm sort of curious as you think about this movie do you, h- how do you categorize it in your head or what are the natural categories you put it in
1: I, I categorize it as a Guy Madden film Okay, <laughs> that, honestly that, works. that, 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 that just, really works seriously you know I, I think that um, I mean I think this this is the auteur theory uh, completely, uh, completely validated right um, I mean Madden likes to play with genres so you're right. It's it's been identified as each of those things. It's been identified as his musicals. It's been identified as his comedy. It's been identified as drama, and I think one of the things I love about Madden is, um, and even though, like I said in in uh, uh, in Keyhole, he kind of plays a bit with film noir, but he he really doesn't have much of an interest in gener- in, in fulfilling generic expectations. Uh, he's much more about style and feeling and the rhythm of his editing. So, yeah, I, I think all you can say to somebody is it's a Guy Madden film, which means it's going to have a little bit of everything in a visual style that is unique.
0: Do his other f- feature films have this comedic of tone, though? I'm, I'm kind of curious because this actually like... Um, to me to me my overall emotion i get from it is i'm kind of moved and 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 a sadness that i think he's going for but when i rewatched it i'm like this is decidedly also really a comedy like there is there's so many parts of this that i think we're suppo- we're supposed to it, it at least has the shape of a comedy in kinds of ways so so i'm i'm curious is that um is that is is that unique to this movie or do all of his movies have
1: that feel to it yeah it's certainly the most comedic of any of the feature films that i've seen i mean he's got he, is there there are a few of the shorts that are certainly comic i uh, i I alluded to how to take a bath earlier i mean that's 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 a pure comedy as well um but but i I would say that he tends in other places more to um tends more towards absurdity or absurdism than than comedy this is mm-hmm. yeah this is the funniest thing i've seen that he's done
0: so another thing that is I love about this movie is I love when a piece of art and we'll say a film uh convinces you that another piece of art is maybe the most important thing in the world or the greatest thing in the world like like i walk out of this movie and all i've listened to this week i just keep doing youtube searches for different versions of the song is you and i'm convinced like maybe this is the greatest song ever written and maybe i just need (laughs) to keep listening to it because it definitely is all over this movie and it's Mm -hmm. fun to go through and just take note of every time it's played all the different ways that it's played what's interesting about it is it's not uh, an inherently sad song it's not a necessarily sad song you know uh, Frank Sinatra was one of the people who really popularized this and his versions of this are definitely not it doesn't play sad you can definitely find versions of it that, that feel sad and if you read the words it is about somebody who is in love and feels love and is in is struggling to think about how do I express this? How do I hold what's inside of me? How do I give that to you? Or how do I put words to it? So, so it has the possibilities for that. Um, but I love that the way, uh, the way he picks this particular song and then the way he uses it throughout the film. I mean, it reminds me of in, um, uh, in one of the best black mirror episodes, 15 million merits, there's, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Irma Thomas song, uh, anyone who knows what love is will understand. Like you watch that and you were convinced like, this is the greatest song in the world and most important song in the world that I feel that way about the song is
1: you. When I watch, uh, when I watch this,
0: Do you have thoughts about that song in particular?
1: Um, I, I don't know if I can add, add to what you said about it, Sam. I mean, that, that's, the, I, I really like the idea that, um, a song is not necessarily inherently sad in order to be rendered as a sad, as a sad song. I mean, that, that actually struck me in a lot of the contests. I I, I didn't necessarily find what was happening on stage to be inherently sad, you know, especially the Scots and the, uh, uh, and the folks in the Cameroon. Those songs didn't seem inherently sad to me. Um, and yet they were, they were placed within that context. And so I, th- I think, yeah, I think the song is you and, and I mean, lo- that's always the nature of love songs, isn't it? I mean, a love song, can always kind of go either way mm-hmm. uh, depending on how you want to, how you how you want to frame it.
0: All right. So that brings me to the question that, 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 that I want to talk about. And again, I apologize if this is also an annoying question, but like when you think about this movie, if somebody asked you not what happens in the movie, but what
1: is this movie about? What would you say? The movie is about trauma. <laughs> The the movie is about how we deal with personal trauma, and how personal trauma is echoed at the national level as uh, as as national trauma. Uh, And what are our? uh, How do we work through that? How do we resolve it? What effects does trauma have on us? How does it affect our relationship with others? So I I think that to me, that's what the the film is fundamentally fundamentally about. I mean, it's 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 a family drama that that Madden uses to kind of disguise or um, uh, I don't know if disguise is the right word but it, it, it's both about, about na- nations versus nations literally but it's also about family versus family and so uh, in both cases we're dealing with, with trauma whether it's explicitly expressed through status music or whether it's worked out in the, um, in the in the conflicts between Roderick and his brother and his, and his father so that, that's to me is what the film is about.
0: Absolutely no, I, I, I 100% agree. I also find it interesting. Like you look at the two um, uh, the two nations, uh, and I'll use that term loosely that that make it to the finals, right? And you have um, America with Chester, and it's almost you almost miss this throughout the movie, but he is collecting every other nation to build a bigger mm-hmm. and a bigger and a bigger and a bigger performance. Um, and it's that against one person with a cello it's like yeah. like like this individual uh this individual sadness and pain versus this um i mean it's it's such an interesting commentary on america mm-hmm. uh you know in terms of like because at one level chester builds and i'm going to use this term very loose uh, very very delicately and lightly he builds a melting pot right it's like yeah. we this is all of this this is the collective And like and it wouldn't it be sadder if we got all the sad musicians and you end up with the, the the routine that they're doing at the end is so bizarre and like you keep wondering like where is the sadness in this and then you have one person playing a cello um you know like like, like, like those those sort of sort of you know um those two things colliding, I think, are interesting. Um, you know, I, I think what I find interesting is, is, is like how there is something about Chester's performances, especially some of the earlier ones. When, when Narcissa sings Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, it's not even that again, that's a song that you often hear with a lot of pain and sorrow in it, you know. Um, but when she's singing it, it's not that but at the same time there is something haunting about you know that, that that her version of it and then definitely we get to hear all these versions of the song as you saw so you know to me a lot of this is sort of it's the uh, it's the singer not the song you know in terms of like like where the sadness can lie you know where where the how how we can interpret um a piece of art can be forever interpreted and can be interpreted in lots of directions. In the same way, this film we can look at as a deeply sad moving thing. We can look at it as a comedy. We can look at it as a musical. That that there are that there are ways to sort of see and interpret those things.
1: Well, I think it's instructive along those lines that uh, Chester says, uh, "Sadness is just happiness turned on its ass." Yeah. Um, and so, so, th- and I think that's exactly how the film works, right? The idea is that uh, I mean, he takes all these elements of a Busby Berkeley musical. And then just kind of turns them up down upside down to create something that is intended to, to to be sad but thinking about narcissus singing i mean the other thing to me that's going on it kind of gets to the earlier comment about trauma is you know roderick says you know he's angry at her right he says something like you've made a spectacle of our private grief so i think yeah, that's the other thing the film is really talking about or right? it's really thinking about it's thinking about um how does private grief play out publicly and how does public grief become part of our private grief because you know, Roderick representing Serbia, and and there's you know the reference to the assassination. It's 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 kind of an act of sorrow and atonement because of because of the war, um, and so it's significant that you know he represents that kind of cataclysmic event that has caused so much sadness in the world. But it's also represented personally through him with his black veil and his sorrow for his son. So the idea is that. Millions of people killed in a world war is one scale of sorrow and one person losing a child um, is Mm -hmm. another kind of sorrow. And those two things are in a kind of a symbiotic relationship with each other. So Madden doesn't have to make an epic film to comment on the sorrow of of world war. He can make a very personal film and yet still be reflecting that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I. Absolutely. And that yeah, that those that those two things are happening simultaneously because if you have large scale war, you also have lots of sons and daughters and mothers and fathers dying. And so those personal dramas and those large-scale dramas are they have by definition are linked in those ways too. And and
1: and that's what I think is pretty remarkable about Madden, right? Because if a film like this could it could just look like a parlor trick. It It could just look like, you know, a bunch of gimmicky stuff. But there's actually there's actually a real heart at the center of the film Madden actually cares about these characters. I mean, these are, these are not, um, well, you know, I love the Coen brothers, but but sometimes I'm not sure the Coen brother characters are real characters. Sometimes I think the Coen brother characters are, are, are figures that they like to manipulate and kind of get a laugh out of. I, I'm I'm not, always sure there's a heart at the center of certain Coen brothers Mm -hmm. films. Um, but with this film, I feel like there's a real heart. I, I care about Roderick. Um, Uh, I I care about Chester um, marching so defiantly towards his doom, um, which is another way to think about this film, right? It opens with the the prologue and the prophecy uh, of Chester. And and, and so that's the other thing that looms over this film. You know from the beginning that he's a doomed man. uh, And and he's a uh, he's a lesson to those of us who will not take the lesson of, of our sorrow. So we know that you know Roderick is on a different path from Chester, and that Chester uh, the Chester is uh, heading heading towards the disaster that's been been foretold. Well, and so, that's one. Of, yeah, but yeah. I don't care about him as that happens.
0: And that's one of those interesting things on the rewatch that I noticed. Like, I didn't. Th- I don't think I noticed the first time through when he's in his dad's house how he goes out of his way to never touch the piano to always be like he's up against the wall as he's sliding past the piano he does he never wants to touch the piano I mean that's what his father was playing when his mother died and then the movie ends with him putting the piano back up and playing finally face you know sort of this idea of like you've started this song Roderick let's see it through to its conclusion it's like the first time that he is uh, you know, he's touching the piano and he's playing the piano and he's now singing the song that Roderick wanted to perform, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that way. And, and I guess the, the first time through I missed again, because I, because I even missed like the mother's death scene being a meaningful thing. I missed the number of times that he is, I mean, he treats the piano like it's like, it's, you know, this toxic thing that he cannot touch, you know? Um. So, so even his ending is this kind of like, you know, he says, I, you know, I never cried at my father's or my mother's funeral. He says the very beginning. And mm-hmm. then at the end, you see him in tears, finishing the song as he burns to death, you know, uh, and and that uh, that that seems like a real payoff
1: at the end. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I love the fact that the prophecy is in ice and the death is in fire, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. By the way, one of the things I've forgotten about the film, but the minute it happened, I remembered it was the the way that the father in the uh, tips the piano over in order to play it as it's lying on the ground. I mean, I, I don't know where Madden came up with that idea, but it's an amazingly striking image because it so defamiliarizes the piano. Yeah. And it becomes kind of a symbolic, it's like he's like he's playing on the corpse uh, of of his of his dead wife because it's lying on uh, lying on the ground. It it just it's such an interesting way to express sorrow by by putting the piano on his back. I just, yeah, I think that's genius.
0: And even like when 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 Roderick sees it, he says, oh, I thought you didn't play the, I thought you didn't play the piano anymore." And he says, "No, I just only play on my knees. No more dignity, <laughs> you know." And yeah, and and then when Roderick comes at the very end, even though he plays the cello, he kicks the piano over, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then and that's the piano then that the that that Chester tips yeah. back up to play. So yeah. yeah, no, like like all of that business is kind of great, and it be, and it becomes a. A symbol, even if you know, if a person watching, it's not able to articulate. You definitely see all three men in that family working on that piano in some way or another, and I think that's that 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 creates a kind of meaning. Um, one of the other great things about this movie is the genius casting of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Isabella Rossellini uh i have to admit i didn't know who her mother was uh until (laughs) this and and i was reading about it and i'm like oh my goodness like especially her in the blonde wig there are moments where it's like oh it's just ingrid bergman like it's like if you're gonna make a if you're gonna make a movie set in that time period wouldn't it be great to have ingrid bergman well this is about as (laughs) close as you're gonna get and and uh she's great and madden even talks about like the um uh hearing his dialogue said through that voice and just kind of how magic how magic that was. Now, here's what I want to know. Do you know the story of casting Isabella Rossellini? I do. Okay. I do. Cause it's, I don't know Guy Madden well, but the story sounds yeah. like it came from this movie. Like it sounds like an absurd story. So he is, uh, Madden wants to, to, offer this role to her and he's kind of embarrassed it sounds like to like send her the script and he's wants to call her he's in new york wants to call her but can't and he sees her randomly in the park walking around and she goes up to uh to somebody who has a big dog and she's petting the dog and puts her hand in the dog's mouth so madden walks up and starts petting the dog puts his hand in the dog's mouth and he says, and eventually the dog owner left and we were just holding slobbery hands together as we were talking about this movie. And it's like that, if he put that scene in this movie, it would be perfectly fitting. I cannot believe that story.
1: No, I, no, it's 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 a it's it's an absurd story, um, and I and I I've been trying to figure out, Sam, whether it's so weird that it must be true. Um, I I don't know, but yeah. it, it is a, it is a great it is a great story. I no kind of
0: don't want to know. I I want to yeah, believe yeah. that it's true. Uh, another piece of really great casting, um, uh, especially for you know somebody who is a. Uh, you know, child of the nineties is Mark McKinney in this role. Mm. Um, Cause I only know him from the kids in the hall mm-hmm. as you know, this uh, kind of early mid nineties Canadian sketch group. Um, so I have trouble taking him seriously at all. And he plays mm. this character that probably doesn't need to be taken particularly seriously, but he's in this movie that has these serious moments, but the whole thing feels like this might be a kids in the hall sketch too. Like at any <laughs> moment, something absurd could happen in a kids in the hall direction and instead absurd things happen in a guy Madden direction. So uh, where at first I found it a little off putting. I realized like, actually, it's kind of great. It's kind of great that I have this baggage with him because uh, it sets a, a strange set of expectations for whatever could happen.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I went into it, not knowing kids in the hall. So I didn't have to get past that. Uh, yes uh
0: and then the the other piece of casting that i i loved because i've only seen her in one of my favorite movies of all time uh is maria uh, de medeiros mm -hmm. um, who plays uh uh bruce willis's girlfriend in pulp fiction and it's such a strange character she has this very small part and it's just that it stands out as just this very odd Mm -hmm. character who has an odd way of speaking and just an Mm -hmm. odd Demeanor in that movie, and it's kind of unexplained, but she's just there. Um, I think she's amazing in this movie. I think she's really
1: fantastic in this movie. Yeah, she told Guy Madden that he'd lied to her more than any other director.
0: Right, because he told her that everything in Winnipeg was going to be really well heated, and yeah, turns right. out that the studio they were in was not insulated. So she,
1: yeah, yeah, he said, yeah, he said something. I like, don't worry; it's forty below outside, and it's ninety degrees inside. And of course, she's from Portugal. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but she, she, you're right. She is, she's fantastic, and she has that element that, again, as you pointed out, it's just one of those things that what's, what's it in there? What's with the tapeworm? Uh, her tapeworm tells her, and then maybe the tapeworm dies and. You know, I don't I, it's just one of those elements that that, God, that Madden throws in. Um I mean she's a strange character anyway, right? She's a victim of amnesia. We don't know exactly what she remembers, what she doesn't remember.
0: Yeah, and there's something about her delivery of lines because the character ha- has such a strange backstory. It's like everything sounds right coming from her, even though like she has she has the, 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 the strangest work to do in this movie. She the thing she says, the like I said, the when she like just lays down on a snowbank and takes a nap. It's like, well, I guess this character would do that. And there's something about her that's, that's, you know, kind of um, foreign enough to the setting and that you just sort of, you just sort of accept that. And then again, I do think her musical performances are great and haunting. I, the, the two, when she sings the song as you at the end, or mm-hmm. actually when she sings the song as you at in the middle of the movie too, when it breaks out into the bigger musical number with the hockey players and the nurses and things like that. <laughs> But then uh, I think the, the swing low sweet chariot is such a such a weird affecting uh, performance mm-hmm. as well. So just yeah, I just think she's kind of amazing.
1: And I th- and I think yeah, I guess you know one thing I would say about her is in a sense she's really the only character that's comfortable in her own skin and with her own life. As mm-hmm. as weird as her life is, she's actually the only one who kind of seems okay with what's with what's going on. Um, I also think it's interesting, you know, that part of Part of Chester, part of the character of Chester is, I think, Madden's critique of show business um, and the fact that, you know, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot is co-opted in the way that he co opts it. I think is, uh, I, I think it is in part Madden's commentary. Uh, of course, it's partly a commentary on Americans. It's a commentary on what happens when a Canadian goes off and becomes an, uh, tries to become an American and essentially loses his soul. Um, but I think it's also a comment on the danger of art. Uh, the danger of doing things artistically in order to have an effect on an audience uh and thereby kind of losing the 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 meaning of the the message
0: yeah yeah well oh, and there is also the the fact that the um <clears throat> the contest ends up being a fixed game <laughs> by the end i mean when i i love when the uh the, the col- we didn't talk about the we have not about the commentators for the contest but I, I love <laughs> them as well uh and when when um uh, lady port Huntley shows up in his number yes and she's like isn't it odd that the judge is uh, <laughs> is in the performance and it's you know like that also yeah I mean I, it's a commentary on lots of things I think um, but uh, but yeah I, I love those two characters as kind of a uh, the strangest Greek chorus you could have throughout this you know just sort of uh telling the backstories of of kind of what's happening and um and and who the people are so i, I really really enjoy that uh do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie because i i have a uh one or two more guy madden things but before <laughs> we move off
1: of this well i just i just kind of want, wanted to go back to what madden himself said about the film and it kind of it, it echoes what i was saying earlier about the film more both a family drama and something about larger issues. Um, and he said in, uh, in an interview in Art Forum, he said uh, that, that the film is about how third world countries can survive only by losing all their dignity or by keeping their dignity by handling in a very clever way. Mm. I, thought that, I thought that was an interesting comment that, that, you know, you have to do something cute. You have to somehow be Interesting, uh, diverting to the rest of the world in order to survive as a, as a third world country. Uh, but he says at the same time he didn't want to make it a political satire, so that's why he put in the family melodrama, uh, and then he has the family manipulating each other through things like self pity and, and fake pathos. So I, I kind of liked, I kind of like that that perspective um, on the film. Um, and then I also wanted to kind of comment on, I mean, obviously. As I alluded to, Chester meets the end that he is destined for, uh, the end that was foretold. But it's also interesting that his father, who is improbably named Theodore, which gives us a Russian reference as well, that, that... we haven't talked at all about the glass legs mm-hmm. um and and the glass leg filled with beer that um lady port huntley uh, she takes an almost you know sensual pleasure in these legs you know she's stroking them at one point and saying oh i'll never have to shave and then she has that wonderful dance but but he that ultimately becomes kind of his expiation of his guilt, right, over, over cutting off both of her legs. So you've got that wonderful scene of him getting drunk on the beer out of the leg. And it's, a, it's, it's it, it works the way symbolism is supposed to work, right? Because it's entirely realistic. He's drinking beer out of a really big glass. But it's also wonderfully symbolic because he's taking the punishment for sawing off her legs. So I kind of like the end of his story as well because he's also the story of unrequited love. Um, and ultimately, he dies for his love for his loved one, both because of what he's done to her and because the love is unrequited. So, I, I so I just like the way that you know those character arcs get get completed.
0: I ha- I have to say this based on that. Um, one of the great things that we've done in this episode, as much as we've talked about this movie just the, what you just said point, pointed out to me there's so many strange things in this movie we didn't even comment on there's a lot <laughs> I mean <laughs> that's the first time we mentioned that lady porn huntley doesn't have legs <laughs> yes. and we didn't talk about why she doesn't have legs and what a you know like and 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 what he you know when he meets his uh, his end in the big pool of beer we I mean like there's just so much in this movie that like is strange but you just sort of ex- you know you just sort of accept those things um you also reminded me of the the speech that uh, 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 Chester gives, it's the voiceover when they go to the banker's funeral mm. and he's mm. talking about kind of the performative sadness and why we perform sadness and what we hope other people take from our sadness and why other people perform sadness. And um, which is like a, a, a moment where Madden is just sort of saying, let me just give some commentary. on." I mean, because like, it really is, there's not a lot of that kind of voiceover in this. I also think that the thing about that funeral as well, like the way he employs color um in in certain moments um it's visually arresting because Mm -hmm. it's not just color it's a uh i don't even know how to describe the kind of like um it's it's very uh saturated color and it's very like um very few color i I guess i don't even know the processes for that and i don't know is that as a sort of Eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter version of color film, kind of thing, or if it's old film stock or what. But that there's something really arresting about that.
1: I, th- I think. I think the 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 effort there is to invoke the days we talked about this when we talked about silent films, right? To invoke the days when silent films were literally colored, you literally you know painted on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, um,
0: if I was going to watch another Guy Mad movie, what would be the next one I should watch?
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think probably my Winnipeg. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's where I go to next.
0: Here's the other question. this is where we're going to talk about our art installations. Have you experienced Guy Madden's seances?
1: No, I've read about it. I've heard about it. but I You got to do
0: it. So this Great. was, a, I did this last night. I'm just going to tell everybody this. Um, if you just do a Google search for, um, actually, I, just, I have the, the, the URL right here. Um, it is uh, seances.nfb.ca. Um, so if you just do a Google search for Guy Madden seances, this is the most interesting project. Um, (laughs) so, so he's very fascinated by, um, the fact that a lot of, he says 80% of movies from the silent film era don't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, so he and a bunch of other people, uh, started to take descriptions of movies that existed and don't exist anymore. And they sort of filmed short versions of them and they filmed all Mm -hmm. kinds of stuff. And then he worked with a Canadian technology company to do what he calls algorithmic storytelling. So when you go to seances, you're supposed to, you, you click on the screen and you have to hold it, you know, as if you had your hands on the table in a seance Mm -hmm. and it takes all of this footage that they put together and it creates a movie. He says there's uh, hundreds of billions of iterations of what you could see. So you see a, 11 or 12 minute movie, and it starts by saying this 11 minute movie is about to disappear. And then you watch this movie, which is these different things that they made cut together, um, uh, and not just randomly cut together, but there is in this algorithm, there is some things to give some narrative construction to it. And they're mostly silent films. I watched a couple of these, um, yesterday, uh, and uh, it's it's fast, it's just a fascinating project. Um, the the two I saw were, I mean, they're very strange. Visually, they were very different from each other, uh, had sort of terrifying moments. And he said, sometimes you'll watch them and they won't really make sense. But he says, quite often you'll watch them and a meaning will be kind of found in them. It is also sort of thinking about like Eisenstein and montage filmmaking, right? Like if you put things together in an order, it creates a kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was an art installation that is now a website. So you can if you ever want to go and watch a algorithmically produced Guy Madden short film, you can do that. And again, the two I saw were deeply different and really interesting so i, I highly recommend uh checking out guy Madden and seances uh much stranger than uh the saddest music in the world <laughs> thanks man. all right barrett well um, we're going to take a little bit of a break you're uh you have a, a trip coming up i have a trip coming up so we're going to take um, a little more than a month off so this episode will be dropping on may 15th our next episode will be june 19th um, so we'll be coming back kind of in the, uh, the early part of midsummer. Um, so, Barrett, what do you have for us for our next episode?
1: Well, Sam, we're going to stay in Canada. Uh, gonna do, we're going to do a little run of Canadian filmmakers. Uh, so the next one I want to watch is Away From Her uh, by Sarah Polly, uh, based on a short story by a great Canadian writer, Alice Munro. Um, so it's one of uh, – it also continues the theme of sadness. Uh, it's about uh, Alzheimer's. Um, but it's uh, it's and it's Sarah Powell's, uh directorial debut, uh, and I think it's a really fine film from I believe two thousand
0: and four. Oh, fantastic! I'm very excited for this. Well, Barrett, um, I have to say thank you so much for recommending this film, for having this conversation, for introducing me to Guy Madden. I definitely want to. Uh, I I I think movies need to be stranger than they are sometimes, and I think he's interested in pushing at some of those edges. Uh, so I'm excited to see more from him. Um, I'm also excited to uh, to take a little little bit of a break. I have a, a backlog of things on my viewing list that I'm going to catch up on during this break. So maybe I'll give an update on the 19th when we uh, when we drop our next episode of what I watched in the interim. Uh, but thank you very much. Uh, that's all the time that we have. We will be back next week, or excuse me, we will be back on June 19th. <laughs> (laughs) to talk about away from her in the video store.